0: Welcome to Oto Mentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. This is episode six, exploring leadership opportunities in otolaryngology. My guest today is Dr. Douglas Girard, who is the chancellor at the University of Kansas. He has previously held the roles of vice chancellor, interim executive dean of the KU School of Medicine, senior associate dean for clinical affairs, and chair of the Department of Otolaryngology at the University of Kansas. Dr. Girard completed medical school at the University of California, San Francisco, and residency at the University of Washington. He served in the U.S. Naval Reserve for 15 years prior to joining academic practice. His specialty is head and neck oncologic surgery, and his publications in our field are voluminous. I was fortunate to have completed my residency at the University of Kansas during Dr. Gerard's chair tenure, and I consider him to be one of the most influential figures in my career. I fondly recall rounding with him on the head and neck service and learning to operate in his ORs. What most struck me was his ability to make every patient feel truly heard and cared for. Thanks so much for being on the show, Doug. By the way, it still feels weird calling you Doug, even though I graduated from residency 10 years ago.
1: I can relate to that, but thank you for having me today.
0: Yes. <laughs> do you still have that experience sometimes I with do. your I mentors? Do. My
1: former chair, I, I will get so as casual as to call him Hefe.
0: Okay. All right. That's a good one. <laughs> I like that. So let's go way back. How did you first decide to be an otolaryngologist? You know, I think
1: uh, as I was going through med school, I had no idea what I wanted to do and pretty quickly figured out I liked the surgical fields better. So was enticed by trauma and all the excitement that goes with that, but actually had to do a required rotation on otolaryngology. We did two-week blocks with otolaryngology, urology, ophthalmology. I can't quite remember what else. But what struck me about otolaryngology was how much everybody enjoyed working with each other and the collaboration and the camaraderie with the olaryngologist, which was not necessarily what I experienced, at least with some of the other fields at the time, recognizing this was back in the eighties and things were a little different then. But, yeah. and, and then so I, that piqued my interest. And then as I sort of explored it and realized the depth and breadth, and then sort of the cop out is you can still do a lot within olaryngology. So you're sort of making a decision without making a decision.
0: Yeah. So even though it's a certain part of the anatomy, there's a lot of different ways to go.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: How did you decide to do some leadership roles? I mean, was that something that you knew early on that interested you, or did that just evolve coincidentally?
1: Certainly evolved, but I always enjoyed the system side of things. And so when I would get frustrated with how something wasn't running well, or always thought it could be run better, or we could do it differently to get a a better outcome. That was something I was always willing to spend some time on, and I enjoyed doing it, and it was satisfying to me, and that kind of led into other roles as you start down that path. And those projects got bigger over time.
0: Right, until a very big project recently. <laughs> <laughs> Work in progress. The entire university. Did you have a mentor along the way who, as a leadership mentor, not necessarily a clinical mentor, but that you saw as a leader that really influenced you?
1: Yeah, certainly my chairman when I was at the University of Washington, which is Dr. Charlie Cummings, um, who after leaving the University of Washington went on to lead Johns Hopkins for a number of years, was really an outstanding mentor in academic medicine. Incredibly engaging person, but also one who expected great things from people and really encouraged them and encouraged and positioned people uh, to be successful and maintain that really to this day, quite honestly. so kept those relationships really over the years with his mentees, of which he now has many, many dozens, I'm sure.
0: So that sounds like the difference between mentorship and sponsorship almost, where he set you up for the leadership roles.
1: Well, I think that that, that maybe is as, as much sponsorship. I mean, I, I think a good mentor can be both. I think you don't have to be a mentor to be a sponsor, and you don't have to be a sponsor if you're a mentor. But I think uh, it's not uncommon that people are in a position to do both, that, that have A wealth of experience that they can lend advice and provide that guidance, and then at different times, be in a position also to sponsor you into opportunities.
0: So, what are the most important lessons that you've learned on your leadership journey?
1: That's always the hardest one, right?
0: But certainly, I think
1: it's to uh, just never lose your moral compass of what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish, why you're trying to accomplish it, and keep the focus on that because there's a lot of noise. And it's easy to get sidetracked and frustrated if you get sidetracked typically. So I think keeping that North Star in sight, once you sort of decide you're going to take on a leadership role, what do you want to accomplish? Why do you want to accomplish it? And then keep that focus.
0: How much time do you spend finding that compass, thinking about not the day-to-day things, but more the uh, vision, the mission that you're trying to achieve?
1: Uh, never enough, I would say. Um, I think that's as we all get busy, it's harder and harder to find that time, that reflective time that I think is is so valuable. But really, where it comes to the surface quickly is in times of crisis when things aren't necessarily going the way you want them to go for a number of different reasons, and you have to make some hard decisions. That's when you have to fall back to that position and say, okay, what is the right outcome here based on what we know is the right thing to do or to accomplish what we need to accomplish and kind of set the politics and the personalities aside.
0: And how do you communicate that vision, whether it's a time of crisis or a time of peace? How do you communicate your ideas? Uh, You know, that gets harder and harder the bigger the organization gets.
1: And communication always is the biggest challenge because there's never enough time either. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the best way to communicate is one-on-one. There's nothing more effective than that, but it's hard to scale that. And and there's a, a saying that you can communicate The same message, seven times, seven different ways, and reach seven different people. I mean, it it truly is that hard sometimes. And so you really have to have many different ways that you communicate, and you have to be very conscious about it, and then recognize that probably half the people out there still never heard it. So constantly be working on that, and take every opportunity to do it.
0: The other thing I sometimes struggle with is fostering motivation in people I work with. How would you recommend doing that effectively? (sighs)
1: You know, for me, motivating team members is largely a matter of liberating team members. So almost always, my team members have much better ideas than I have because they're living it each and every day in whatever it is that they do. And and I'll throw ideas out there, but when you draw ideas back out of them, that starts to create risk for them. You have to create a risk-free environment, essentially, for people to be aggressive, for them to go out of their comfort zone, for them to take some risks, to make some decisions, to do some things. And then you have to let them do that and know that they're going to stumble once in a while. We all stumble. I mean, that's part of the learning process. And so they need to feel comfortable and safe doing that.
0: So what is one characteristic that you think every leader should possess? I think
1: the number one characteristic is good listening skills. Again, I think we often as leaders have ideas of what the answer might be or what the right direction might be. But if you don't stop and listen to those around you, particularly those who have content knowledge around you, I think it's very easy to go off in the wrong direction. And it's demoralizing to the team. But most importantly for me, usually they will give you better ideas than your own. And so good listening skills is critical.
0: Yeah, I've I've always heard you have to listen more than you talk as a leader. On the flip side of that, what do you think is the thing, a characteristic that derails a lot of leaders?
1: Two things I would say. One is inconsistency. So people who are moody can be very difficult to work with. And if everybody around you is trying to decide if this is a good day or a bad day to bring something to you, that creates a very uneven work environment that's not very helpful. And then the second is uh, losing your cool essentially is never helpful. And it doesn't really matter what the setting is. It just doesn't accomplish very much. You might feel better for a minute, but the reality is you've almost always made the situation worse. And so staying calm and keeping your cool is, is important.
0: It's probably difficult to pick just one, but looking back at your roles over the years, what has been your favorite, uh, besides your current role, of course? <laughs> we always have to say that, right? Right.
1: You know, I, I think um, in reality, I think being the chair of a department is, is one of the most rewarding roles. You have the opportunity to work within a much larger system and work with other leaders across campus. Uh, as well as across the country, but at the same time, you have the opportunity to hire and recruit and mentor young faculty and students and residents and and have a very direct impact in that regard while maintaining a clinical practice. And it's kind of the best of all worlds, I think. Sort of the sweet spot of academic medicine, I would say.
0: Speaking of that, how do you identify or introduce yourself now? You know, you've been a surgeon and you're an excellent surgeon, but you aren't really operating anymore, Do you say, I'm chancellor? I mean, how do you see yourself? Uh,
1: You know, that's always an adjustment for me. I'm now the chancellor. It doesn't really matter what my background is. It could have been an English professor or it could have been a surgeon. It's it's not a requisite to being in this role. And yet my role for the university is, in fact, to be chancellor and everything that goes with that. So that's typically how I introduce myself or i am introduced more commonly, which is fine. And then inevitably, over time, the sort of what's your background comes up. But I've been with the same institution for 25 years, so a lot of people know that that's my background because of my previous roles.
0: So what do you consider your greatest accomplishment?
1: Uh, Raising three happy, healthy, and successful children. That's (laughs) That's probably my wife's number one accomplishment. (laughs) I just was there to help. Uh, That's hard. That that one is really hard. Probably seeing a lot of uh, the young people around me go off and be successful. You know, I think there are structural issues, you know, moving our organization through clinical integration, which is the biggest, most complicated, drawn out five year event I've I've ever participated in, getting that accomplished and seeing it work the way we anticipated it is was incredibly satisfying. But it's really the people part of it that is the most satisfying.
0: Yeah. And for those who don't know, can you describe what that clinical integration process is? Sure. Was? You
1: know, we you know, every academic medical center is structured differently and in our case We had our hospital, which is a public authority and reports to a governor-appointed board affiliated with our medical school, which is affiliated with the clinical enterprise of uh, the physician practices. And each of our departments was its own 501c3 corporation. We ended up having 25 of those on campus. Over 100 contracts between us got renegotiated every year. And it was just a very cumbersome process. And we, we progressively centralized all the activities, but we still had that corporate structure. And so over time, we we were able to, to work to collapse all of that into one large practice plan, merge that with a hospital enterprise to create the health system and restructure how every dollar flowed on campus, and 2,500 people or so had to change employment through the process, and it was it was long drawn out and uh, not very fun, and far too much time with lawyers uh, who, who, thankfully, they were there. They kept us out of trouble, but uh, we ultimately got done what we hoped to do, and it's it's worked very well.
0: Failure often teaches us more than success. What do you consider something that didn't go as well as you would want it to go?
1: You know, probably uh, specific uh, interactions with with other folks, either other leaders or mentees, for that matter, that that didn't play out as well as I would have liked. And usually that was because I didn't take the time that I needed to at the time. Probably those that I learned the most from in terms of how you interact with others and uh, try and learn from those because we all have them. Try to learn from those so you don't repeat those mistakes.
0: Yeah. What do you think separates a mediocre mentor from a great one? Two things. I think sincerely caring is certainly the biggest one. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and sometimes that's hard. I mean, you have people who you really don't know very well that approach you and say, Will you be my mentor. And if You you have to take the time to get to know them uh, to be an effective mentor. And so it's, it's uh, caring and, and taking the time to develop the relationship and being willing to do that. And then once you have it, you don't You can go long periods of time. You can go years, quite honestly, without an interaction and still be an effective mentor, I think.
0: What advice would you give to the budding chair of a department as far as what they need to do to be more involved in leadership? How do they get there?
1: Well, I think as a budding chair, the first thing you need to do is listen and watch and kind of get a feel for the landscape, not just of your community, meaning your hospital and your school leadership, but also of your own department and your own faculty. and We all come from different backgrounds. And You will never walk into an environment that's exactly like the one you left, and it might be better. So, so again, I think taking the time to listen and learn before you start making radical changes is, is a good idea. Occasionally you have to make some radical changes, whether it's financial or whatever. You're, you're sort of forced into that, in which case you want to have as many people around the table as you can.
0: So what do you do to take care of yourself? Since you have this stressful job, you've had stressful jobs for many years. How do you avoid burnout? I think if you don't enjoy the job, you're not going to last very long.
1: So you really have to enjoy what you're doing. And probably more importantly, you have to enjoy the people that you're doing it with. And sometimes that means you got to mix the team up a little bit. If you have a member of the team that is making coming to work every day pretty tough, you probably need to make a change there. But if you have a really good team... Even the most challenging times, frankly, can be pretty enjoyable as, as you work together as a team to overcome them. So I think that's first and foremost for me is if, frankly, these jobs are way too hard. If I didn't love doing it, I wouldn't be doing it. I'd be in the operating room. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so is there
1: anything else that you'd like to add? Well, thank you for the opportunity to, to come and sit down and chat with you. These are things, quite honestly, we don't reflect on all that often as life is so busy. Right. Um, and I, I think it's great that you're taking the time to, to do this. So thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks. It's my pleasure to have you on the show.
1: It's great to be here.
0: All right. If you like what you just heard or didn't, please go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There you will find a link to a brief survey so I can improve the quality of this podcast. I would greatly appreciate your help.